Hi, and welcome back to part two of my interview with Hollywood journeyman screenwriter, Teddy Tenenbaum. If you've just joined us at this juncture, then heed the words of Stanley Kirk Burrell, better known as MC Hammer, and stop. Head straight back to download and listen to part one, then shuffle on back for part two. For everyone else, we rejoin the conversation with Teddy touching on his feature assignment remakes, The Fantastic Voyage for 20th Century Fox, and El Maestro del Toro's words of wisdom to Teddy after his pitch to Guillermo of his version of the Hellraiser reboot for Dimension Films, as well as get updates on horror spec Red Door and the recent success of the Koreatown Ghost Story short film getting picked up by Paramount Players for development into a feature. Enjoy! Chinkui! We'll jump on just to two more writing assignments because I listened to a couple of podcasts and I kind of want to hear those stories just for the listeners here. Mm -hmm. The first one, though, which um, I was hoping to get some information on was your remake of The Fantastic Voyage for 20th Century Fox. Um, Right. Because I know Guillermo del Toro's name was bandied about um, with this project, and I never know if it was actually formally in the end attached to it. But do you think that your version will ever see the light of day or this film is going to see the light of day? (laughs) I mean, it's a good question. This has been in development forever. I was the first writer to take a stab at it. So um, that helps me a little bit, except that it's based on an existing property. So it doesn't help actually a lot. Um, (laughs) And I'm pretty confident that most of these, as they've changed producers, um, so not just writers, but producers have changed. um, They have, probably a lot of the writers have probably never gone back to my script at all. Um, So um, it's unlikely that my version would have much of an effect on what's coming, except to say that there are some concepts in mine that if they stick to become very important for um, and and become help shape the, the, um, the, the story and the plot Um, Mm -hmm. primarily that, um, I introduced nanotechnology into the story. Um, so the idea is that, you know, there's whatever body that this they happen to be going into, yes. they're they're confronted with nanobots that have been that are also in the body, probably destroying it. You know, like um something's gone wrong with the programming instead of trying to save the body, they're trying to destroy it. And so, I mean, if that stays, then you never know. It, it might even might just be story credit. I I don't know. But I, I do believe that um, James Cameron was attached to produce it. Um, when I did it, um, there were no producers attached when I got on. It was just the studio. Um, and the studio hired me based on my pitch. But then Independence Day came out. And um, it tells you how long ago this was. And, <laughs> uh, and we all thought Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich would make mm-hmm. great producers. Um, so we, I went and pitched my version to them while they were shooting Godzilla. Uh, so I went to the, the set of that to pitch it to them and they got on board. Um, but then they, you know, eventually after I was gone and then they took, a, you know, I, I, Dean may have even written a draft. I'm not sure. And then they left and then James Cameron. And I guess I, I, Del Toro may have been, as you say, involved too. I have no idea who's involved now. Um, and will it see the light of day? I mean, I, I would think it would, it's such a great story. It, it is. feels like it has to, but, um, but now Fox is owned by Disney. Um, so who knows? You just, I mean, it would fit great within the Disney move too, I think. Um, Mm. so it's hard to tell, you know, this is Hollywood. It feels like it's the only thing that hasn't been remade, you know? (laughs) 
That's right. Well, and, you know, as a seasoned screenwriter in Hollywood, you're no stranger to projects falling into the limbo of development help. Yeah. So it kind of brings me to this very detailed interview on the development help podcast that you spoke at great length about your Hellraiser reboot. Mm -hmm. So look, as a horror fan, I'd be remiss if I just didn't briefly ask you to just touch on your version. Um, for Dimension Films. So just if you could share, you know, just a highlight or two on the reboot and the meeting with Guillermo del Toro, just for our listeners. Right. Uh, you mean um, uh, how I got the job meeting with Bob Weinstein or um, the or, the, or the, the plot of the movie or what in particular? Are you? Um, well, look, definitely the del Toro version because I love what he says to you in the oh, That meeting. <laughs> that <laughs> yes, meeting. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yes, of yeah. course, I mean what you can share um, of your version because at the moment sure. there's is it David Gordon Green that's rebooting I think so and I think it's television yes okay I think they're making a TV series uh, yeah I'm pretty sure it is and actually I know they cast they cast the part of um of the um of pinhead as well so um I'm pretty sure it's a it's a it's a and it's a I can't remember if she's uh if it's if it's an actress or a transgender actor, it might right. be. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember but it was a really right. interesting casting and very yes. clever, cool casting. But yeah, so um, Hellraiser as a as a reboot floundered for years and years and years, and a lot of writers took a stab at it way before I came on. I only came on a few years ago, and um, uh, I just you know this is Hellraiser fans would hate me um, because uh, I'm not a huge fan of the original movie. Um, I like the book uh, or the novella um, or maybe even sure. I guess it's the difference between a novella and a short story it probably is, you know, is, the is somewhat, you never know. I mean, it's it, whatever the author thinks, but yes, um, yes. I, I liked that more than the movie, even though Clive Barker directed the film as well. Mm. And, I, I, and I, and I'm a huge Clive Barker fan and I love him as a person um, having worked with him, but um I, it's just not my favorite. So um, it's just very, very super dark for me. Um, and I like dark, but I, I like it. I like to have someone to kind of root for and empathize with. And I kind of felt like there was almost no one to empathize with in the original film. Um, but that's just me. Uh, they told me to take the mythology and go anywhere I want. So I had entirely different characters, uh, except for Pinhead was still, you know, and the, um, I can't even remember the name of the, the collective name of the creatures. Um, um, uh, Cenobites. Yeah, Cenobites, exactly. Um, so my uh, version had a young woman, and I also, I, I used the um, the puzzle box, which I know also has this interesting name. Um, lament configuration. But the lament configuration, yeah. that's right. Um, I, I kind of turned it into a, a device for the movie. The idea was that um, a little bit ring-like, in, in meaning mm -hmm. the movie, the ring, that once someone started manipulating the lament configuration, it would become a game. It would start this clock ticking and each side of the cube would represent something else. And as the cube, almost Rubik's cube, like would change shift shape, what would appear on one side would be an image that would reflect the next tragedy in your life. And basically you'd lose the most six most important things in your life until the sixth one, the five most, until the sixth one being your own life. And that, at that point, your soul would be damned to hell or to the Cenobites realm. Um, and Pinhead was kind of the master, the game master in this. And it became a story, you know, the goal was to create a real story about a character, a person we cared about 
who was going to lose everything in her life. She was already a troubled character and was going to lose everything in her life, and including the, the things she cared about the most her younger sister in this case. So uh, it played out uh, in such a way that there were all these reveals about who Pinhead actually is and created a mythology that he was a, a figure of from mythology that we already know and that already exists. And um, getting into it could be tricky, but some of it was based on the biblical story of Job, that Job mm -hmm. lost everything um, and God was testing him. You know, if you would lose everything, would you still have faith in God? Because Job was a fairly rich man when he started and um, someone questioned whether or not he'd still have faith if he were poor and lost everything. And so this was tied into that story. You know, everyone who loses everything they have is being tested in a way. And the original Pinhead went through this as well. All that aside, it was very different. And once the studio was it signed on to my version of it? And it was Bob Weinstein was running the Dimension at the time, you know, Harvey's brother. So Harvey Weinstein would run Miramax and Bob would run Dimension. Mm -hmm. And I had no contact with Harvey. I never met him, but Bob was interesting in his, in his own in right. His own right um, uh, not criminal, but interesting. <laughs> so the first person they wanted me to, they wanted to get a director on board to help me develop it and have a director ready to go. And the first person they wanted me to meet with was... Guillermo del Toro, my, like one of my heroes. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he's a genius. And I had no, never seen any interviews. I had no idea what to expect. So we went to the Warner Brothers lot where he was editing Pacific Rim and um, went into the edit bay where I pitched him uh, my version of the story. Now, he, I knew he had a history with Bob Weinstein. Yes, because of Mimic. Exactly, which was, I think, his first American film. That's right. It was his second film after Chronos. His second, maybe? correct. Yeah, okay. And it was, he was, he left the movie like early on, and they, uh, maybe he was even fired. And then Bob brought him back. And that Bob's famous for that kind mm -hmm. of firing people and then rehiring them. And I know that it was very contentious, but apparently things were okay now that he was willing to hear a pitch. Uh, from me with Bob Weinstein in the room as the studio. And so I went in, we, he introduced himself as if I, I would not know who he is. <laughs> you know? um, I pitched and he was a great audience. He got excited. You know, the many audience, most audiences in Hollywood are very, they try not to show any emotion, but he was very emotive and it was fantastic. And at the end of it, he was very honest. He said, I love this. I love this. You did such a great job with this. I don't like this part. This part doesn't work for me. You know, um, I didn't know what his final answer was going to be. I just knew that some things worked for him and some things didn't work for him at all. And at the um, end of the meeting, he's saying goodbye to everyone. We're all saying goodbye. The three executives or the two executives and Bob both leave ahead of me. And he kind of holds onto my shoulder as I'm walking away. And uh, he says, uh, I turn around and he just puts out his arms to give me this hug. And, you know, he's a He's a big guy and he wraps his arms around me. I'm not a big guy. Um, and he envelops me this huge bear hug. And he says into my ears, good luck. <laughs> and I didn't know if that was because he was warning me about what I was about to get into, which he would have been right. Yes. Uh, um, or if at the time he was just saying, you know, good luck in your life. But I'm pretty sure he meant good luck working with uh, the crew yeah. you're about to work with. It was a very layered um, good luck. Yeah, yeah. And it was just such a warm and amazing moment um, that he was, you know, it was like one writer to another passing on the, you know, the warning uh, of uh, the hell that you're about to enter with this project. <laughs> Uh, so he did not he did not end up signing on, but it was the best rejection I've ever had. Oh, look, look, thank you so much.
let's talk about um, collaboration, specifically with your muse, co-writer and life partner, um, mm-hmm. Min Sun. Could you walk us through your writing process, please? So I mean, it's it can be very difficult to write with your spouse. I think it's it's it depends on your personalities. And I'm more extroverted, and she's more introverted. So I think it's right. more difficult for her. And also, you know, it's to find to somehow find what you agree on for a, a work of you know, call it a work of art, a work of entertainment, whatever you want to call it. It can be very hard. You have to have a very similar vision. Um, luckily, on most areas our visions overlap a lot. We both love the same kind of horror, which is mostly what we're writing now. Um, So what we do is we sit together and we break the entire story, all the major beats of the story, all the Mm -hmm. major structural points. It's too hard to do it too many hours during in a day. Um, So we really only, when we're doing that, we only spend a couple hours a day together doing that. And then I'm usually the person typing it up. And then once we finish that, if we've got the project that we know we're like we do right now with Koreatown Ghost Story, we move on to a scene by scene breakdown of uh, every single scene because you know there's the arc of the whole script, mm-hmm. the dramatic curve of the um, the story, but every scene, virtually every scene, has to have the same. It yes. has to have a conflict. It has to have an arc. It has to go from one place to the next. And le- except for the few scenes that are interstitial, that are just getting you from one place to another, really. And then some set pieces, which are just about the fun and the horror and excitement. So we sit down, we break all the major points of every single scene. So we know what the conflict of the scene is. And we know a lot of the dialogue and where we're going. At that point, we can break up. And that's probably the best part because we get a lot more done because it's two people working separately yes. and because we're not yelling at each other, which we don't actually yell at each other. <laughs> but we're not arguing with each other. So at that point, we each write separate scenes. We typically, like for instance, Min Sun will write a lot of the scenes with humor in them because she's incredibly funny. And I'll write a lot of the horror scenes because I really like writing suspense. And then we'll also just take whatever. We, we parse out everything else just as it comes. And um, once we've got a whole script, we each go back on our own through the script and rewrite each other and ourselves. And then we have a single draft that we can mostly work on together. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for that process. Because I'm always intrigued, especially, you know, with a couple, how you go about managing that. And I guess it's no, it's no real difference. You both have to wear your um, writer's hats at that point. Look, in an interview with Final Draft dated August 2017 about <laughs> yeah. the horror script Red Door, because I'd like to touch on that, written by yourself and Min Sun, it was described as a cross between The Ring and the then upcoming Ready Player One. And you've already mentioned something ring-like. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to know if you could elaborate on the comparison that you were making there. Sure. I mean, the reason we said Ready Player One is because Red Door is a horror movie that takes play that is um, informed by augmented reality. So instead of being entirely in a new world or entirely in a virtual world as Ready Player One is um, when they're playing, our characters had the ability to use an app uh, on their phone to augment reality so that the digital world was imprinted on and affected the real world. Um, and the characters experienced that. And um, the reason we mentioned the ring is because there is a, uh, a gimmick uh, that's somewhat ring-like, um, which I still think the ring is one of the great kind of devices in movie history and certainly in horror history. Although they really put them, they gave themselves a real bind if you ask me in the ring, mm-hmm. because, you know, I remember watching it the first time thinking that phone rings and you have seven days 
and and then you die in seven days. And like, so what happens in between now and then? You know, um, is it just you just wait to die? That's a boring movie. <laughs> um, and if you're in fact following one of the other characters, the not not the investigative character, nothing would happen. Yes. You know, they just kind of sit around and nothing happens for seven days, and that's kind of boring. But so they created this. It's really a mystery. Um, it's a kind of an old fashioned detective story. Um, in a horror movie. We don't do that, but we do have a device where once you start playing this augmented reality game, you have a certain number of, you have to complete the mini games within the Mm -hmm. larger game. And if you survive the game, you survive in real life. So there is, it's not a ticking clock, although there is a ticking clock too, because there's a, a, sure. a clock on the game, but it's, there are games along the way, which is, was our way to solve that problem of nothing happening for seven days. But it is, that's why it's got a ring-like device in it, um, which is, you know, a device where there's a time and there are certain things that happen along the way and you have to win or you had to survive. You have to survive to survive essentially. And that's kind of the way the ring works too, I think. And the last question, are there any updates that you can give us at the moment for Red Door? Because I know it was some time ago. Does it look like there may be a director that's getting attached to it at this point? We had optioned our script, which means the option has lapsed and we own it again. Okay, um, okay. My apologies. Yeah, so we can do whatever we want with it. We have actually started redeveloping the idea, making it. We actually did something strange which for us, which is that we had this uh, the character be a lead male which is very rare in horror mm, and that's right. also really rare for us because I mean, ever since I started writing, even by myself, my lead characters have almost always been women. I find a story with a female protagonist, just so much more interesting um, because women handle typically handle these situations differently than men. I think that they, these stories are usually richer emotionally and because it's also not as common. So, you know, it's more yes. interesting. And, and then, in horror, I mean, I think horror is really the most feminist genre mm-hmm. there is. Um, Agreed. They're, you know, they're called final girls for a reason. It's because, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's almost always a powerful woman who uh, who survives um, and beats the bad guy in horror. Of course, it's also got its terribly exploitative versions as well. Yes. Um, but in general, we think it's a great uh, genre for expressing female empowerment and stories of women. Um, so, but we decided... Actually, we said, you know what? There are always women. Why don't we make it a guy and do something different? Not only do we think that was a mistake, um, but also uh, in the re-engineering of the story, we think one thing that's really interesting that we didn't touch on in that movie is the sexism that exists against women in the gaming world, which there have been some real world stories about in the last couple of years. So we kind of wanted to uh, switch it up and because it's really a man's world, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. the gaming world, the gaming world. So we're reimagining it. Um, we're also looking at it more contained than it currently is. And if we go anywhere with it, we're going to be, we're going to go out with it as directors ourselves. The point, one of the points of doing Create Sound Ghost Story, our short, which we're turning into a feature for Paramount is that um, we want to tell our own stories now. We want to direct our own stories. And it's not just an, like some kind of precious artistic thing. It's commercial. It's, it's commerce. We have had too many scripts not get made because we couldn't find a director who we liked or a director who we wanted wouldn't do it or the studio didn't like the director that we wanted. And that that search to find a director is often the thing that derails a project. But we're starting to get have meetings with people where they're looking for writer directors because they know too that if you have the director already attached and they're writing it, you have a much slicker path towards getting the movie made. 
So anything we write now, we're going to, if we continue on this path, we're going to um, want to direct it as well. And that's where I'll close the door on this conversation of the red door. And we'll wrap up on a new door, which you've mentioned, a door that leads out to the precipice between worlds and your latest creative endeavor written and directed by Sofa Minsun being Korea Town Ghost Story. Because I've heard the genesis of the story. It was inspired by an incident that happened to a cousin of uh, Minsun's. But I'm going to go back just to when you mentioned, you know, that she grew up in a haunted house. Now, I didn't react like I wanted to react because I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> your story. But it's an amazing, you know, just when you, th- and it was such an off remark, you just threw it out there like, <laughs> yeah. like you're adding spices into yeah. <laughs> a recipe. So, you know, and that's obviously for an entire different uh, moment. But for those who are listening and unaware, could you just give some details um, of the incident that occurred to Minson's um, cousin to inspire the story? Oh, sure. Yeah, by the way, that was a really lovely transition. I had the doors. I really like that. that oh, thank you. That's that. a- <laughs> so when Minson was just a little girl, she had moved to America. She moved here uh, from Korea when she was like a year and a half old. So she's basically been here all of her life. Yes. And um, she still had cousins, many cousins who lived in Korea. And one of them uh, was about in her early 20s. She lived in Seoul. It was Min Sun's cousin and her mother was Min Sun's aunt. And um, about a week before her wedding day, a banister on her like fifth floor apartment building broke loose and she fell over the edge and fell to her death. Uh, and, you know, obviously it was a, a terrible tragedy for mm. everybody involved. And the um, her mother started to believe that she was being haunted by her daughter, by the cousin who had fallen. And there is actually a ritual that is done. It's not common, but it mm. is commonly known in Korea and also some other Asian countries. Um, I think it's been outlawed in one of them. I think it may be China, but it's still practiced in most of them to some degree where a priest or a Buddhist monk, uh, whoever is appropriate in this case, I may have that detail wrong, by the way, but um, uh, from my understanding, and will marry two deceased souls of two young people who have not been married yet to each other so that they have a partner in the afterlife. As soon as that was done, Min Sun's aunt felt that she, the haunting ended, that her daughter was satisfied and she was not haunted by her any longer. So that, that story has haunted Min Sun <laughs> um, yeah. since she was very young. And um, we thought, you know, what would happen if a living person were asked to marry the spirit of someone else? And, um, of course, that sounds like a terrible idea and the perfect <laughs> setup for <laughs> a lot of bad things to happen in a horror movie. And that's the setup for Great Town Ghost Story. Uh, which I absolutely love. Obviously, the way that you went to market with this, its intention was as a proof of concept. So feature development was the end goal. But did you expect that it would come together so quickly? No. Uh, well, I mean, we didn't expect it would come together at all. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I can't tell you how many projects you work on the, the, the percentage of projects that you work on that get purchased uh, that actually, you know, help you make a living is, is very small unless, you know, you're an A-list writer who sells just about everything that they, that they write. But even those guys, you know, have misses occasionally. Mm. But uh, we have to, I would have to say that, that we got very, very lucky and everything was in confluence in ways that you just would never expect to happen. Um, for one, we shot in the middle of COVID, which was incredibly difficult and cost a lot more money. And it turns out was incredibly helpful because we were able to get Margaret Cho on board as 
executive producer and star of the movie um, who, you know, we was a dream come true for us. We're the biggest fans. We've seen every live show she's ever done. And we wrote the role for her, but it was still, uh, you know, the longest of long shots. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reason, one of the reasons we were able to get her is because it was in the middle of COVID and she wasn't doing any touring and she wasn't shooting any movies. So she was available. And also she was spending a lot of her time watching horror movies because she's a huge horror aficionado um, and not just a fan, like she's an expert. Um, So that was one thing that worked out in our favor, COVID surprisingly enough. Um, But also for the first time in history, literally the first time in history, Hollywood is looking to tell the stories of groups that don't usually get to tell their stories. Uh, um, You know, um, non-white cisgendered guys you know um and and you know i i think that credit for this the lion's share of credit for this goes to the movie get out because um without it uh without jordan peele there would be no get out which was a huge hit Mm -hmm. and a hit across the world yes about a subject matter that most people around the world would not have any understanding of it's so almost uniquely American and almost uniquely the experience of a black man in America. Uh, and so, and that, and it somehow traveled. People were fascinated by it because, you know, Jordan Peele's a great direct, a great filmmaker. And also because it's a really fascinating story because, and, and since then it has only continued. It's not just African-American film, but you know, uh, Parasite, not American, obviously, but yes. Parasite won best picture and Chloe Zhao last uh, year won best director for Nomadland and um, people whose are, whose voices are out of the mainstream of American entertainment are now for the first time ever getting the chance to tell their stories. And those stories are, you know, and the stories that they want to tell, which are often stories of underrepresented groups. And the reason that this is happening is because people are going to see them, mm-hmm. you know, we, and, and the people are going to see them because the stories are new and different and they're new points of view. It's a new way of looking at the entertainment that we love because of that, you know, we, and we were, we were encouraged to lean into that by our manager, who's also the producer of the movie, Jim Wieda, who could also see this was coming on the horizon. And frankly, we had avoided in the past writing a lead character who was Asian American or Korean American um, because we figured, how are you going to cast it? You know, until Aquafina came along, there was no one of that age group who meant anything uh, name wise. Obviously with horror movies, you can take risks on actors. You don't Mm -hmm. always have to have stars in the movie. We had actually avoided something that now, we were able to embrace. And um, so that was the second thing. So the zeitgeist, you know, was really working with us on this too. So all of these things come together and luckily we were able to, we had an amazing cast and crew. The, our crew was 60% underrepresented minorities too, because we cared about representing behind the scenes too. 50% Asian American, but 60% underrepresented minorities and 60% women, which is something that we want to continue to do and will insist on in the feature as well that we have at least half 50 50 parity between men and women and also between underrepresented uh, in terms of underrepresented groups and and the and again we have a commercial reason for that because all of these people are artists in the film and all of their voices go into the storytelling in the film and the best way to make a story that's unique and interesting to audiences is by having people whose voices aren't usually heard 
yet to be part of that creation process. So um, this is like the best thing that's happened to Hollywood in my lifetime. And we're very excited about it. And we got lucky that it happened. And also that, you know, as a white guy, I'm married to a woman who is, uh, uh, who is uh, an underrepresented minority. And, you know, uh, I, my kids are, um, are both Korean American and um, my, my family on her side is all Korean American. Yes. So I've grown with this over the last 25 years as well and gotten to know this culture as well as, you know, a non-person, a person who's not part of it can get to know it. And it's a story that I wanted to tell as well. And I got lucky that I'm connected with, with someone who can tell this story authentically. And again, congratulations on the fantastic festival run. Because, uh, you know, among the wins and the honorable mentions at the Oscar qualifying festival, holy shorts, holy shorts, you know, the cherry on the cake being getting picked up by Paramount Players for Korea Tango story to be developed into a feature. So it is absolutely outstanding. I mean, hearing what you guys are trying to continue, especially when you're mentioning voices normally of underrepresented, because whether it's a production design element or, yeah, I'll stick with that, that the creative team behind that, they're bringing that uniqueness, that voice to those touches mm -hmm. that they're giving. We looked at how you would split the writing elements, but I'm curious, how will the two of you decide on what roles or define the roles for co-directing a feature? Yeah, I mean, that's that can be tricky. Um, but we found that actually, at least on the short film, and the stress was incredibly high on the short film, because as I mentioned, it was during COVID and we were constantly worried about that. Um, and we had a, a small budget and we had three days to do it. And, and we, we, you know, it was a very ambitious schedule. So there was a lot of stress and there were moments that it got to us. But I found that we actually had an easier time directing together than writing together. Because again, we had already told the story or we had already created the story and now we were just telling it. But we also, we we do have different things that we we love. And uh, we some things we share pretty, all decisions we can share equally. Um, and we're there, both of us are there for every take. Uh, both of us are there to talk to the actors and um, to help you know them figure out what the motivation behind in the script is supposed to be. But then a lot of the stuff we do is separate. I'm obsessed with the camera and um, the movements and shots, uh, something Minsan is less interested in. So right. I map all of that out ahead of time. Um, and, you know, of course she sees it all and goes through it all with me, but I'm kind of the person who's the starter on that. She has a lot of more involvement in costumes and makeup than I do. Um, we both get involved in production design in terms of the set design of it all. Okay. Uh, I'm obsessed with music, so I'm usually more involved with that. I'm more involved with editing, makeup effects and special effects we're pretty equal on. Um, so we kind of divide up these departments into areas that we have a passion for, which also makes it really a lot easier on the production team because there are two people they can go to for answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we don't question each other's answers, Minson and myself, we, we trust each other. So um, it's kind of having two people do this job that where one person is usually overwhelmed it can be really helpful. And, and we've been talking about the number of days we might have if we get to shoot this um, with the producers who you know have a lot of experience shooting with Paramount. Yes. And um, you know, the number of days they're talking about with two people, two people directing it, it sounds like easy to make um, because we can make you know twice the decisions in the same amount of time. Absolutely. I wanted to round off this interview, if I could, with a thought about legacy from a quote playwright, Lin-Manuel Miranda. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. You know, I thought as parents, our legacy are our children. 
mm-hmm. but what legacy do you hope to leave to your children about you? Uh, I don't really concern myself with legacy that much. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I do, I, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius and I love everything he does. Um, but also what he's doing, I think has more import in the world, uh, than what, what we're doing. I mean, everything we're doing now in terms of horror, we want to have a social message behind embedded in it. So I don't see myself as high and as, as influential as all of this, but what I would care more about than anything else is that presentation of a story of someone who's, you know, an underrepresented person in our society or uh, an outsider can change someone's mind uh, about how they view others in our world, how they view immigrants, how they view people who are minorities in our society, how they view people without power, how they view the underprivileged, economically mm-hmm. underprivileged. That's, you know, if, if we could change my, a couple of lines here and there, and, and we do kind of look at horror as a, a Trojan horse for social messages because it's it's a genre that the masses love that you maybe you can get your message across that way that would be a, my greatest accomplishment i think it's beautiful i mean if you can sometimes it's a case of trying to move the world whether it's socially or emotionally by millimeters mm-hmm. sometimes it helps us to bring it back and look at it at a granular level yeah i really do appreciate all the time you've given me teddy and you can kind of say look jose we need to stop here or can you indulge me for five more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay. You might be, I'm guessing you might be very familiar with uh, James Lipton. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. So obviously, you know, the late, great James. I was a huge fan of Inside the Actors Studio. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of become a staple now that I'm asking, I'm using his final 10 questions to um, <laughs> ask people on the show. Because I just always thought it was so brilliant. Yeah. And like James Wood, I'll give credit to the list coming from French talk show host, Bernard Pivot. Um, as well as noting its origins from the French novelist Marcel Proust. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as he would say, the purpose is to reveal a greater insight um, into a person's thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Are you still comfortable Mm -hmm. to go ahead with this? Yeah, because I don't remember them. So so sure, what the heck? I have nothing to be fearful for. Thank you very much. All right. So what is your favorite word? I mean, I use words constantly and <laughs> my favorite word probably changes from week to week. So uh, I cannot say, I know this is the boring answer, but I can't say I have a favorite no, word. Fine. It might be a swear word. Don't worry, that, that question's in this. So <laughs> yeah. What is your least favorite word? Generally, my least favorite word is whatever word is sweeping Hollywood uh, meetings as kind of a, you know, uh, like uh, some sort of uh, corporate speak. And I'm trying to think of one like that you see a lot of now, but there's the Hollywood always has some, you know, word that everyone starts using that to sound smarter about story development or something else that um, really doesn't mean anything. Uh, So I can't think of an example, but that's because they change every, every month. There's a new one. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, Well, I'll tackle creatively two things really. One is something that's fresh, but familiar, um, which is, I think, what we try to do as writers with our work is create something. Uh, so there was a, um, one of my favorite, and I, don't, I can't quote, I can only rephrase, Sidney Lumet uh, has written my favorite book about uh, filmmaking, making movies. And I think it's a brilliant book for writers, even though he was a producer. Um, because it talks a lot about story. And 
I also believe I read this in Zen and the Art of Screenwriting, which covered this as well. Um, but a lot of great writing teachers talk about this, um, that uh, the writer's job is to, oh, and also John Irving um, talks about something similar in his book on writing, that a, a writer's job is to surprise the audience with an ending that seems completely natural. So you get to this end of the story and the audience has to feel like this is the only possible way this story could have ended, but they never saw it coming, which is incredibly difficult. And when as a writer or a filmmaker, I see it happening and I see myself being manipulated that way, I love it. I just am I'm so thrilled, one, to see the puppet strings, but two, that someone was uh, so brilliant as to be able to fool me uh, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a teaching experience or learning experience for me. So that kind of floats my boat, uh, <laughs> creatively. And what turns you off? A lot of things, but when it comes to creatively, I think that it's, um, pomposity. I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people trying too hard to come off as clever and smarter than thou. Um, and there are some people who just are that way. I mean, I think, and then I think there are people who go back and forth. And uh, I like, for instance, I think Christopher Nolan's films are truly remarkable and above me in most cases. And I love them. And I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. And sometimes I just, I can't follow it. And I still love it. Um, and other times I feel like he was trying just a little bit too hard to be smart here. And maybe it's because he was so smart, I didn't get it. <laughs> Which I think is just as likely as, as anything. But when people are, when, when people try too hard to be above the audience or to shoot for an audience that has to be of a certain intellect to get, that, that bothers me. And, and in fact, to go back to the last question, when I see it done in a way that can reach all audiences, I am incredibly excited by what I've seen. And I think for me, Wings of Desire, which is one of my favorite movies, is a great example of a movie that lives on so many levels. You know, you can try to understand it philosophically on the highest level of intellectual uh, discourse, and it works that way. Or you can see it as a beautiful love story, and it works that way as well. So um, when someone can do that, and it doesn't feel forced, it just feels like someone who's, you're, you're, you're getting an insight into the, a brilliant mind. That's really exciting to me. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> Um, oh, it's gotta be the F word. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I don't want to put you in the, uh, the adult section of, uh, Apple. <laughs> um, I try not to interrupt these at all because it messes up yeah. your flow, but, um, right. I'm already in that section. So don't worry about it. Every upload <laughs> is explicit. So please, I should have said it beforehand, you know, you can drop whatever you want. So I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's fine. But yeah, that, I mean, unless I'm forced to say it, I, <laughs> I reserve it for excellent moments. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, cause not only do I think it works incredibly well as, um, as a, as a forceful verb, but, but also an expletive, uh, and, uh, no one has a mastery of it. Like, uh, like Martin Scorsese has a mastery of it. And uh, admittedly it's his screenwriters, but I think that he knows it and, and, and requires it to some degree. There must be a contractual obligation for screenwriters to have a certain number of, uh, of fucks in, uh, <laughs> his movies. What sound or noise do you love? music. Um, I mean, that's such an obvious answer, but um, if I hadn't been in film, 
I would have tried to find a way to work in the music industry. I have no talent in that area. Um, so I would have just been an AR guy or something like that. But um, I need it around me at all times. It's very hard for me to sit in silence without music. Uh, and, and in movies, it's tremendously important to me too. And not just scores, although scores are incredibly important, um, but the right song at the right time. I really loved our, our score for our short film but we didn't have a lot of time to work on it. You know, we had to do it really quickly and we didn't have a lot of money for it. So our brilliant composer had to do it really quickly. But given the time, there is a piece called Armenia by a band called, uh, I never, the pronunciation is always hard for me. I think it's Einsterzende Neubaten. Uh, they're a German industrial band. <laughs> Um, and it was used in the movie Heat, the Michael Mann movie, however many years ago. Mm -hmm. And I always listened to it and I thought, this is the perfect horror movie soundtrack. It's, it's so horrifying. And uh, I would love to use that someday in a soundtrack. What, Sorry about that. The no, 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 working on that. That's okay. I was going to say, because <laughs> it maybe leads into this question. What sound or noise do you hate? That one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The phone ringing when you're actually uh, getting a phone, getting a phone call or a text is pretty uh frustrating to me uh it's like I, I used to love these things you know growing up but now i've joined the millennials and that I, I don't want anyone calling me i don't want anyone texting me i don't want anyone interrupting me there are only two more questions and you know no more interruptions um <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt you probably answered it with the uh that would have been one i loved anthropology but there's you know there's not many jobs. <laughs> so um, I don't know if there would be a, a good job for me in that. And then frankly, if I were, I mean, I'm kind of a practical person. And if I were doing this now, if I were going to college now, I would probably go into engineering, probably the same thing my daughter does, which is um, biomedical engineering, because it's the future. And it's one of the few things that I think you can actually get a job out of school in. Film is certainly not that. And what profession would you not like to do? All of the others. <laughs> okay and the final question if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates um probably hi teddy nice to see you this is david lean david lean teddy tenenbaum thank you very much teddy you've been so gracious with your time mate oh sure it's my pleasure i appreciate you indulging me um and i hope you've enjoyed yourself oh yeah absolutely and there's my visitor, I guess. Yeah, love <laughs> it. Took all the way to the end. Wait, if yeah, cat the, it's a gorgeous black cat. So if they cross again one more time, we will have glitched in the matrix. So <laughs> I think it's a perfect moment to uh, just say, <laughs> right. I look yeah. for, I really look forward and I hope um, there will be others too, that eventually they can see. Well, I guess because the short was picked up for feature development, will it ever be available for public viewing? Well, the only way I can see that happening is if it's included in kind of like a, behind the scenes okay. or um, extra footage. Yeah. For, but there's still, I mean, I don't know when your, when your podcast is going to air, but we will be in festivals until basically the end of December of 2021. Right. And then that's it. So that's probably the last opportunity for a while. I do look forward to seeing it on the silver screen, Koreatown ghost story, as much as you and Minson look forward to sharing it with the world. And to our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the fantastic voyage we traversed with Teddy Tenenbaum today, as much as I have. Thank you once again, Teddy. It's been an absolute pleasure. I was going to say thank you. I had a great time and uh, thank you for inviting me on. My pleasure. And to everyone else, stay safe. And until next time, ciao. Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, 
please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.